Okay, turn to John chapter 16. This message is entitled, Now You See Me. And you'll understand why in just a moment as we start reading. John 16, starting in verse 16 through 24. So if you turn there, I will read for us. John 16, 16 through 24. This is Jesus speaking now. It's still the farewell discourse. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew what they, that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and, a little, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will, will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This is God's word. So this is now you see me, and you'll, you'll find your outline there in your bulletin. First, we see sorrow into joy. Those are verses uh, 20, let's see, 16 through 20. Then we have verses 21 and 22, the joy of delivery. And finally, 23 and 24, the fullness of joy. I, I entitled it Now You See Me because Jesus does this sort of weird thing at the beginning where it's kind of like, now you see me, now you don't, then you will again, but then you won't again. He does this thing that is kind of, it's a little bit weird that he's talking that way, and we'll, look, we'll get into that. But it confuses the disciples, and so then he clarifies. But then he starts to talk to them about their joy. Remember, this is a farewell discourse. He's saying goodbye. And he's talked to them about, primarily about the persecution they can expect to face, but also about the Holy Spirit coming and what that's going to mean to them. And now he's talking to them about Joy. So I thought we should probably start this morning by, by discussing the, what is joy? What is joy? It seems like just sort of a, 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 short, a shorter way of saying happiness. And we could go with the dictionary definition. It's something like a, an inner sense of exuberant well-being. Okay. The theologians will tell you that joy is what's going on inside of you when rejoicing is when you are rejoicing outwardly. And that's a little bit more helpful. But I think that across the board, joy is like many other words in the Bible. Joy has been 
Um, it's been watered down into something sappy and kind of second rate in our thinking when we think about joy. The truth is, according to the Bible, joy is something that we all want. And it's something that we, most of us, all of us, spend most of our time trying to engineer the right combination of circumstances to get. Joy is very important to us. And let me just give you a few examples, and then maybe you'll be on the same page with me. Joy is what you feel when you're in your favorite place with your favorite people. And joy is realizing that the trip just started. Joy is the energy in the air when 60,000 fans watch their team win the last game of the playoff series. At least that's what it was like at Petco Park. I can't speak for the Dodgers. <laughs> um, joy is what it feels like to be truly accepted for who you are by a person that you respect. Joy is walking into a room and knowing that everyone in there is happy to see you. Joy is holding your baby for the first time and realizing that this is your son or your daughter. Joy is handing that baby to your other children and watching them fall in love too. Joy is what you would feel if you could embrace someone that you've lost one more time and spend an hour in conversation with them. Joy is the first bite of your favorite food. It's the last mile of a long drive. It's the smell in the air after a summer rain and it's the letter from the homeowners association saying, actually, your landscaping looks really nice. Thank you. <laughs> actually, it's not that last one because no one knows what that's actually like. Can HOAs be redeemed? I don't know. We'll find out. C.S. Lewis wrote that joy is the serious business of heaven. So that's joy. It's something more important than we usually think about. It's something we spend our days longing to feel. And we get glimpses of it. We have flashes of it. Sometimes it's a small joy. Sometimes it's a deep joy. And this is the night before Jesus' crucifixion. Don't miss this. It's the night before he's tortured and killed in the most humiliating way. And Jesus is talking to his disciples about their joy. Kind of strange timing, if you think about it. Have you ever seen the, the, that one scene that's in a lot of movies where a father is trying to explain something to his child and the child doesn't understand why it's necessary and the, and the father says, this is for your own good. You ever seen that scene in a movie? I, have, I know you don't understand, but you'll understand someday this is for your own good. It's never for their own good, right? It's always something that's about the, the adult in that scene. But Jesus is saying, basically, this is, this is going to turn out well, and you have to trust me. But I want you to think about what the disciples were going through on this night. We can go all the way back, all the way back to the beginning of our story in the Garden of Eden. And there were curses that God pronounced after, after sin entered the world, and he cursed Eve and he said that your pain will be greatly increased in childbearing. And then he cursed Adam and he said, by the sweat of your brow will the ground yield food for you. But the greatest curse was that they were, 
they were, they were shut out from God's presence. They were sent out of the garden away from God, and then the garden was shut to them. And what this means is that humanity lives with the scar of separation from our creator. You can never get away from it. These men have come to know Jesus as their God, not just their rabbi or their friend, but as God in the flesh. Here is God in the room with them, and now he is leaving. Think about it. How could this be anything but another curse? They're about to be separated from God, if you will, for the second time, and Jesus dares to use the word joy. That's what's happening, and that's what we're going to look at today, the joy of the disciples. So let's start in verse 16. In these verses, these first four verses here, we see the preparation for our joy, the preparation for our joy. Verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. What's he talking about? What is he talking about there? It's actually very, very simple. He's saying a little while. He's saying tomorrow, tomorrow you will see me no longer because I'm going to be killed and I'm going to be buried in the ground and you will see me no longer. And then he says again a little while, about a day and a half, and you'll see me again. So he's going to be killed and buried and they won't see him anymore. And then they'll see him again. Now, why doesn't he just say that? Why doesn't he say, they're going to kill me, but then you'll see me again? Why does he talk this way? Why be so vague about it? Because this passage is obviously about his death and resurrection. It's what he's talking to them about. But he doesn't actually use any of those words. He says, now you see me, now you don't. Imagine if you were trying to break some really bad news to someone you cared about, your children. If you knew that you were going to die and you knew how you were going to die and you knew that your children were going to be watching, but you also knew that it was going to be okay somehow, how would you prepare them? This is what it sounds like. Jesus uses the words a little while and he uses those words on purpose. Jesus knows that these men are going to experience intense suffering, but he also knows that it's going to be okay. He knows the, the end of the story, if you will. And so he's preparing his friends for these incredible highs and lows that they're going to go through. Jesus is really talking to them about the relationship between their suffering and their joy. So I want to, I want to take the next few minutes and look at the, the, the two things, suffering and joy, and what they have to do with each other, because that's what Jesus is talking to them about, and that's what he wants to talk to us about this morning too. And there's really, there's two things to observe about how suffering and joy work together. The first thing we want to observe is, is the duration, and the second thing I will call reversal. So first, the duration. In this Christian life, you will have hard times. You can brace yourself for really hard times. Amen? Becoming a Christian is not a pass or a ticket to the easy life. That's not what it is. Ignore 
anyone who tries to tell you that following Jesus is going to solve all your problems and make life easy and comfortable. Jesus himself never said that. In fact, Jesus said the opposite. But what does he say about our troubles? What does he say about our suffering, our trials, our weaknesses, our failures? What does he say about those things? He says, a little while. A little while. These things are temporary. They won't, they won't go on forever. They last a little while. This is biblical too. I mean, this is consistent with the rest of the Bible, I should say. Matthew 5, verse 4. This is a second of the Beatitudes. Jesus says something very similar to what he's saying here. He says, blessed are those who mourn. For what? For they shall be comforted. In Revelation 21, the end of the story, it says that God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In Psalm 30, verse 5, it says, Weeping may remain for the night, but joy comes with the morning. In other words, the pain is temporary, but the joy is forever. Pain is temporary, but the joy is forever. That means that God allows real pain and suffering in our lives for a little while, is what that means. Now, for the reversal, because the duration, he says it's short, it's temporary, but there's something else going on here too. And he explains, I mean, there's, there's verses 17, 18, and 19 are him clearing up their confusion, because they say, what, do you, what does he mean a little while? And you're going to see me and I'm going to the Father. What does he mean by all, of, by all of this? In verse 20, he clears it up. He says, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now watch this right here. This is very important. The words that he uses here. Jesus doesn't just say, I will compensate you for your suffering. Like a lawsuit. Like you went through something really bad and we can't do anything about that, but there'll be something else and it'll be good. He's not saying that. It's a lot better than that, isn't it? There is one place in the Bible that uses the phrase, sorrow turned into joy or something like that. And it's in the Old Testament. It's actually in the book of Esther. You guys remember the... Story of Esther. Remember the story of Esther? The Jews were in exile under the Persian Empire. And there was a man named Haman, and he wanted to kill the Jews. He hated the Jews. Sounds familiar. It's very reminiscent of the Holocaust. And this was an earlier version of the Holocaust, narrowly prevented by God's own intervention. But the Jewish people were facing annihilation. This looked like the end of God's plan to save the world because they were about to be wiped out. True genocide. They were about to be wiped out from one end of the empire to the other. They were all going to die. And this would be it. This would be the end. There would be nobody to come back to Jerusalem. There would be no line of David, no family of David to bring forth the Messiah. This would be the end of the plan. And the characters in this story, just to give you a quick recap, are a man named Mordecai. and He's a faithful Jewish man. And his, um, his stepdaughter, I believe, 
Esther, who the book is named for, and she marries the king, and they find out about this plot. Do you remember? And they, and they bring it to the king, and the king loves Esther, who is Jewish. And through this great reversal, Haman comes in at the, just the right moment, and he says, king, what should be, the king asks him what should be done for the man that the king desires to honor. Remember? It's beautiful. And Haman, the man who wants to kill all of the Jews, because the king is thinking of Mordecai. He's not thinking of Haman. And Mordecai, or Haman says, put him on your, a horse that you've ridden and parade him around the city. Throw him a parade. Because he thinks he's going to get that. But it turns out that he, Mordecai ends up getting his reward. And what happens to Haman? He's hanged on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. Now, why am I telling you this story? I'm telling you this story just to give you one phrase. This is the story of the beginning of the Jewish holiday of Purim. You familiar with that holiday? This is where it started. In Esther 9, verse 22, it says that Mordecai sent a letter to all the Jews saying, celebrate this month. Celebrate this month as the month that has been turned for you from sorrow into gladness. Does that sound like Jesus here? It has been turned for you from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. The book of Esther is full of irony. Haman is hanged on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. And the key, the key to that story and the key to what Jesus is saying here is that something awful is turned into something joyful or beautiful. What this means is that when a substitute hangs on a cross that was meant for you and me, sorrow doesn't just go away. It splits in half and it changes color and it transforms into joy. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the sorrow itself becomes joy. He's speaking about his own death. The death of Jesus was unimaginably sorrowful and unjust, but he bore that sorrow and injustice with such a perfect love in his heart that even death would never be the same. This is your first point in your bulletins this morning, is that Jesus turns his people's deepest suffering into our greatest joy. Jesus turns his people's deepest suffering into our greatest joy. By what he did on the cross, Jesus took every weapon out of the enemy's hands and ruined it. And now sorrow and even death serve him. That's what we're talking about here. Have you, anyone ever heard the, the saying, this too shall pass? You heard that? Does this sound like that? A little while, and then your joy will turn into suffering. I looked that up. That, that phrase is the actual Persian um, proverb going way back. And it's actually, uh, it's actually stoicism. It's saying that whether, whether you're experiencing pain or whether you're experiencing joy, it's going to pass. The bad and the good pass just the same. It's destined to pass away. That is not what Jesus is saying here. 
Jesus is saying that our suffering is the preparation for our joy as God's people. So let me ask you, does that, does that help you endure? Knowing that, does that help you endure what you're going through right now? Whatever it is that you're going through, and I know that there are some things in this room. Does that help you? A little while? Not just a little while and it'll go away, but a little while and it'll actually turn into something that you rejoice in. That's what Jesus is saying because that's what he did. So now we move on to the second point of our message, verses 21 and 22. So we've looked at the preparation for our joy, which is, our, which is suffering that is bound to come. It's part of life. Jesus isn't stopping it, but he is going to use it. That's the preparation for our joy. Now we look at the beginning of our joy. And Jesus uses, to drive home the point, Jesus uses the metaphor of a woman in labor. And this is beautiful because it's something that most, most of us can relate to. I should say, to be fair, it's something that half of us can relate to. <laughs> and the other half of us have, have seen it. Um, verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Amen, ladies? Amen. Yeah, because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For the joy that a human being has been born into the world. He uses this image now to explain to them how their sorrow could turn into joy. There's the pain. If you ever witnessed a childbirth up close or experienced it, you know the pain. You know the the sense of urgency. There's no turning back. This thing is happening. There's one way through. That's out the other side. And unless something goes horribly wrong, it is followed by immediate relief and joy. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is saying the disciples are going to experience. I remember, I remember witnessing this for the first time. It was a Wednesday, October 20th, 2010. Isaiah turns 13 this week. Wow. Hey, buddy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we have a teenager this week. And I remember the day he was born. And I remember the day started with pain. Lots of pain, all day pain. And three or four hours of really intense pain, of labor, lots of pain all day long. But also the anticipation of a baby to hold. And you know, I was thinking about this, and Dory knows that pain better than I do, but I, but I saw it. There was one day of pain, but so far there's been 13 years of joy. Do you see? You see what we're talking about here? There, Jesus is using this metaphor, and it, and it drives home a really obvious truth, which is that you don't get the baby without the pain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to put this in a positive light, okay? You don't get the baby without the pain. That's saying it negatively. To say it positively, Christian sorrow is always pregnant with joy. Jesus' own metaphor. There's a deeper meaning here too, and I don't want to move on before we see it. The deeper meaning is that in, in the Old Testament, in the prophets, the image of childbirth 
came, it came to mean the advent of the messianic era. There, this is a prophetic theme in the prophets, all throughout the prophets. The, the nation of Israel is depicted as a woman who's pregnant with the kingdom of God, and she's going to give birth to something beautiful. This is the, the pregnancy in the prophets meant that God's kingdom was going to come into the world. Do you see? And it would be a traumatizing experience, just like childbirth, but then it would, there would be great beauty and joy because of it, just like a baby coming into the world. So the arrival of the kingdom is painful and then suddenly beautiful. And that's the Old Testament. That is the prophetic vision of the kingdom coming into the world. And they used the image of childbirth, just like Jesus is using here. And it's no mistake that he's connecting to that. But then there's a really interesting moment in the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read it to you. You don't have to turn there. This theme of childbirth in the prophets takes kind of a weird and unexpected turn. Let me read you. Isaiah 26, verses 17 through 19, it says, Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Then he writes this, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light. And the earth will give birth to the dead. And that phrase right there, the earth will give birth to the dead, it's unmistakable. It's talking about resurrection. So Jesus, when he says, it's like, this is like a woman giving birth with sorrow because that hour has come, but then the baby comes and there's great joy. This is what he's talking about. His death is the sorrow. His resurrection is the joy. And this is a vivid image of resurrection, isn't it? The the earth will give birth to the dead. Jesus is gonna come out of the ground after he's dead and buried. And our joy will come up with him. He will not stay dead. That's the point. And that's why their suffering, their sorrow is only for a little while because he's not going to stay dead. He will come back and they will have him forever. What great joy there is. But you see, because of the way that he did this, because of submitting to death and coming back from the grave, the joy that Jesus brings with him into the world from the grave cannot be lost or killed or taken away. It's a joy that is as immortal as he is because he brought it with him from the grave. What this means, what this means is that every other pleasure, every other comfort, every other form of security that this world has to offer is going to leave you sooner or later. You can't hold on to it. But if your joy resides in the person of Jesus Christ, then it's untouchable by enemies or circumstances or pain. No one 
can take it away from you. Can you say anything? Can you say that about anything else in this life in which you take joy? Health can be taken away quickly. Prosperity can be taken away. Security can be taken away. Comfort can be lost. Your peace of mind is as fragile as a leaf blower on Saturday morning, right? These things can be lost. They can be taken away, but the joy that Jesus provides cannot, cannot be taken away because it's, it's tied to his resurrection from the grave and he can no longer be touched by his enemies and neither can your joy if your joy is in him. So that's the beginning of our joy. Our joy began the day that Jesus came up out of the ground, the day that the earth gave birth to the dead. But Jesus isn't done. There's one more thing that he has to say about joy. And now he's going to talk to them about their relationship to God the Father. And this is the completion of our joy. So we looked at suffering, which is the preparation for our joy. We looked at the resurrection which is the beginning of our joy. And now we look at one more thing, which Jesus refers to as the completion of our joy. Verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And this goes back This goes back to chapter 14, verse 13. It says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And it's been a couple of months since we looked at that, but you will remember that this should sound like that. He's saying the same thing, but he's making a different point this time. What I want to do for you is put this in the context of Israel's joy. Okay, let's do that. Because the Old Testament talks a lot about the joy of Israel. And in good times, in good times, when everything was going right, which wasn't very often, but occasionally when everything was going right for Israel, they had lots of reasons to be joyful. Think about this. God was living with them in the temple. Fantastic. It's the only place on earth where God could be, where God actually came and met with man in their temple, in the middle of their city. That's a beautiful thing. They had that. So they were blessed in their relationship with him. They had the law that kept them free, that kept their society working the way it was supposed to. They enjoyed security and prosperity. And their society was untouched in the best times by pagan corruption. It wasn't as brutal and as filthy as the nations around them. It was clean and good and pure there. But even when that was true for Israel, the most intense focus of their joy, and the Psalms are shot through with it, the most intense focus of their joy, the beating heart of their joy as a nation, as a people, were the promises of a future age when God would pour out his spirit on his people. These were the things they really looked forward to. 
And what this meant is that no matter how good things were in Israel, the people of God had his promises that they would someday be even better. And when things were bad, when no matter how, things, how hard things were in Israel, they always had his word that he had not given up on them. So faithful Israel, what the Bible calls true Israel or the remnant of Israel, these were the people who were waiting for Jesus. People who were looking for the kingdom, the people who were expecting God to keep his promises. You see this? Because this wasn't true of everybody, but for those that were looking forward to what God was doing, Their joy wasn't in their circumstances. Everything could be great, but they were still looking forward. All of their hopes depended on the kingdom. Israel would be nothing without it. And their faith was in God and not their circumstances. Those are our brothers and our sisters in the faith from 3,000 years ago. What I'm trying to say is that they took joy in their anticipation that God would make all of his promises come true. There was great joy for them in that. And that is Old Testament faith, faith in God's promises. So why am I bringing this up here? Good question. Why is this coming up here? It's because these men, his disciples, they were Jewish. And Jesus is talking to men who are about to receive all of the promises that God has ever made to Israel. Do you understand? They don't know what is about to fall into their hands. They don't understand how good it's about to be. They're about to inherit the kingdom, but they feel in the moment like they're losing everything. And if these men could feel that way on the cusp of something beautiful and great, and momentous and historic, then the same thing can be true of you and me in our lives. They thought, they thought that they were witnessing the failure of their hope and the destruction of their faith. You remember we said it it sounded like another curse, like God is separating himself from us again. How could this be joyful? Because these men were some of the only people who straddled the line between that past and this future that we're living in. They were born and raised in a faith that hoped God would keep his promises. And they died as men who had seen it. They had entered in and taken full possession of the promises of God. Do you see why Jesus could say, I know how hard this is, but just wait a little while. Just wait. That's what's happening here. They're inheriting the kingdom of God and hundreds of generations of their people had longed to see this. This is significant. It's no wonder that he guarantees their joy, right? No matter how hard the next three days are gonna be. So this is the last thing I want to look at. What does it mean when he says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me? Like it's a good thing, right? What does that mean? Because he is saying that as a good thing. That's, 
Your joy will be full when you're no longer coming to me for the things you need. Why? Why does he say that? He says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying that he's about to give them full and direct access to God the Father. And this was something that would have been unimaginable for an Old Testament Jew. His resurrection would turn their sorrow into rejoicing. What he's saying is his ascension, when he goes back to heaven and takes his place with the Father, that would complete their joy. And what this means for us, I don't know, I don't know if this will sound good to you, but it's everything. It means that the triune God is ours, all of him. All of him. There is no part of God that is closed to us anymore. We have the son who died for us. We have the spirit who lives inside of us. And through Christ, we have access to the father. And we're holding in our hands that which a thousand years of Israelites longed to see and to experience. What does that mean to you? When it comes to the topic of joy, C.S. Lewis, he, it, joy meant more to him than I think any other writer I've ever read. He wrote a book about his conversion and he called it Surprised by Joy. He was surprised to find that the beating heart of Christianity was actually joy. It was the thing he had been after for his whole life and he never knew it until he came home to the gospel. In his book, Mere Christianity, he wrote this, if you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, hand out to anyone. They're a great spiritual fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. Once a man is united to God, how could he not live forever? Once a man is separated from God, what can he do but wither and die? In other words, joy is not something, so much something that God gives. It's something that he is. And it's only in getting him that you get that joy that you want. He gives himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And in receiving Christ, we have that joy. There is no other source of joy that will last in this universe except Jesus. So to recap, the death of Jesus, he's talking about his death. He's talking about his resurrection and his ascension. The death of Jesus was necessary to put away our sin, and that was the sorrowful part of the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus turned that sorrow into joy. And the ascension of Jesus, when he took his place at the very top of heaven, completes our joy by opening the way into God's presence. Let's pray.